Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. Today, we are joined by maybe the most famous person we've ever had on the show. <laughs> maybe. Uh, biggest following on on TikTok and Instagram. Does he have more TikTok followers than Chip Wilson? Maybe. He probably. might. He might actually, yeah. We are joined by, what is is it? Is it Generation X Idiot? Is that what his name is? No, no, it's the other one. Millennial moron. There you go. <laughs> That's it. So yeah, so I mean, this was good. We was on our. I mean, because we're recording remotely, we we've been we've been uh, upgrading our infrastructure lately. Tech stack, big is tech. What we're calling big tech it. guys. Yeah. And anyway, we're not apparently good at tech. No, well, because one of us in particular. But although today we're recording this um, retroactive um, introduction for this episode, and today you did not crash Riverside. This is the first time. But in the interview that we're recording, you'll notice that Nick disappears halfway through the interview. Yeah, I just Irish exit right out of there. No goodbye, no nothing. Kind of Harry Houdini. It's funny because like I was I was there and I was sitting in the studio with you, just seeing like the anger on your face. Like, well, and I'm like, I was like, I was think I was texting you, like, hey, you're not in the studio. Yeah, hey, are you on camera? Is your camera? And you're just like fuming, and I'm just over here, steam coming out of my ears. Like yeah. a cartoon as I'm watching uh, Dan and Mr. Moron have a great conversation. Nick's a big Millennial Moron fan, so. Yeah. Yeah, I am. Yeah. So anyway, that was that was a bit of a bummer, Nick. We, and we'll have to, I guess we'll have to do another episode where you get to ask your questions because I asked Moron. Listen, hey, from uh, from a literally having a front row seat to at least one half of the, uh, of the podcast because it started off with the three of us and then really ended up just being you and again, we don't know his name, Mr. We'll just call him. Mr. Moron or Mr. Millennial Moron, you two had a great conversation and uh, you guys are, are very similar in the way you look at things from a very analytical, extremely well-researched, somewhat cynical point of view. So it was a, uh, it was a great conversation. And just like all of you listening now, when I tune into this episode, it will actually be the first time I hear it as well because I was not a part of it. But enough of that, enough of me. Let's get into the episode where Dan and Millennial Moron have a chat on what is wrong with Canadian real estate. Okay, so it is not just Dan and I today. We are joined by a smart young man, but you'd never guess that by the name he goes by. Do you prefer Mr. Moron or what, what should I be calling you for the remainder of this episode? Mr. Moran is my father's name. You can call me Millennial Moran. <laughs> I love it. So if anyone isn't familiar with uh, Millennial Moran, great follow on TikTok, Instagram, X, go stalk him everywhere. Famous for your European castle bit, which is, uh, which is hilarious. And I think in like the 25 or something like that segments where you essentially discuss European castles versus, you know, shitty duplexes or single family homes in Vancouver or Toronto or whatever that may be. I think what I'm personally wondering, what a lot of people are wondering that are listening to this is what is or was your interest or involvement in real estate before you became this kind of funny, hilarious with with really good takes commentator 
on on the subject? Yeah, so this is a surprise to a lot of people, but I have no professional experience in real estate or in finance of any kind. It's more just a matter of something I was interested in when I first started my, you know, real big kid career. I started looking into whether I should buy a place, whether I should rent a place. Obviously, everybody was saying buy, buy, buy. It's always much better than renting. Uh, but I ran the numbers for myself and I couldn't make sense of it in terms of what the rents were at the time versus what the prices were at the time. And, you know, over time, as I continued watching it, the situation just became kind of worse and worse. Like it seemed to make less and less sense to me. And in the past few years, I think it's past the point where I consider it just, you know, an awkward personal decision to have to make. And it's gotten into something I consider a problem in the broader economy. And then what kind of spurred me to start making these videos, what got me thinking about it again was when interest rates started going up rapidly in uh, 2022. And that was always what I thought would cause some kind of transition in the market. I think it's really hard to predict what exactly that's going to look like. But I think, uh, you know, it was a very interesting time in real estate right now. And that's what got me thinking about it. And that's what got me to start making videos. But I didn't really have much interest in doing the analytical videos at first. I thought I would just, you know, make some funny videos that would be watched by me and my friends and nobody else. <laughs> and they kind of blew up and people started asking what's going on. And so I started giving my personal takes on it after having followed it for maybe, you know, 12 to 14 years or whatever it is at this point. Fascinating. So, well, th th now I'm a little bit jealous. I just assumed that you were on TikTok for like years and years and years. And that's why you had a way bigger following than me. But apparently it's just because you're way more interesting and your content's better. And who would have ever imagined that that's the case? So I guess the question and, and, and the truth is like, you are very good at explaining what's wrong here and you're very good at, at providing news. And so where I tend to ramble, which I'm already doing, I, I would love to just get your take from like 30,000 feet. If you could describe to someone, and maybe it's a summary of the last several years of, of content that you've been putting together, what's wrong with Canadian real estate? What is like, if you were to describe the problem, and I know we don't have uh, three weeks to do it. So if we can, if we can try and do it in like, you know, 10 minutes, that would be great. All right. So do you want, uh, do you want specific details here? Or do you want my, uh, my grand theory of everything kind of take? Let's start with the grand theory of everything, and then we'll zoom in if we if we see any details that we need to nitpick on. Sure. So the grand theory of everything, and this is uh, not just real estate, but I think a lot of issues that have arisen in Canadian politics and business and just our general culture is that Canada generally has a long-term problem with short-term thinking. People are always looking for a solution today, and we end up really always preferring to go with an option of uh, short-term gain for long-term pain. And I think many, many problems that we see today are just the result of an accumulation of that over decades, right? And in real estate in particular, I think, you know, there's, you know, 12 or 15 different things that people will have as their pet theory of what's wrong, you know, from immigration to cheap debt, to political interference, to, you know, amateur landlords in the market, to boomer retirement planning, all these things. And, um, you know, people will often say, you know, which one of those is really the problem? And the answer to that is yes, they're all happening. They're all <laughs> happening at the same time. To me, the core problem that, um, you know, all of these other things are connected to, but the core issue is sort of a cycle that we're in where we have cheap, jet, cheap debt being injected into the market through, uh, you know, the CMHC and, and other lending programs. And then 
we have that driving prices up, which leads people to a fear of missing out, which makes them always think that buying a house is the best decision no matter what at any price. And then because of that expectation, it would be very, very painful for a lot of people if houses were to go into a protracted contraction in prices. So you end up with government interference, which results in more cheap debt being injected into the market. And you can see that with all sorts of programs like um, the RRSP homebuyers plan, where people can borrow money from their retirement in order to fund a down payment. They increase the cap on that. We've had the Canada Mortgage Bond Program, which you know was introduced basically as a way to inject liquidity, liquidity into the mortgage market. And now the government has decided to start purchasing something like half of the annual issuance of that. So not only are we, you know, insuring the mortgages and injecting liquidity into the mortgage market and then, you know, buying up the mortgage-backed securities that these mortgages have been packaged into, now we're buying our own vanilla bonds that the government is issuing kind of back to themselves to keep things going. So there, there is very much an issue of government interference in the market. And to me, those three things... That's the main cycle that keeps driving prices up and up. But just recently, the cheap debt side of it has kind of fallen out, right? Yeah. Which was never not going to happen. Yeah, it's interesting. The So, you know, there's one thing that I find fascinating where you're saying people can borrow against uh, their retirement. There, you forgot to mention the unregistered program where you convince your parents to get a HELOC to give you a down payment and you actually get to borrow against your inheritance rather than your retirement or you get to borrow against their retirement. So skip a generation. And then the other piece that's that's fascinating, and I'm not sure how much how much research you've done into this, but I've, I've done a lot on it. And Nick and I actually do a lot of work with this credit product, but outside of just like single family home ownership and end user and owner occupier stuff, CMHC is also doing a lot for the creation of purpose-built rental with very similar programs through MLI Select. And I mean, regardless of whether or not it's good for the long term of, of Canada, because I think it very much is that type of product where it is a, it's a short-term solution to uh, that creates a long-term consequence, whatever the off, opposite of deferred gratification would be. But it is literally the only thing propping up the multifamily market right now. It's on, the only thing getting houses built is the fact that you can do it with functionally the cheapest debt in the market at the highest leverage point and the longest amortization as long as you're building purpose-built rental housing in, in Canada. So it's a fascinating addition to the discussion there as well. Yeah, and I would agree with that. And you know, from my perspective, if we're going to go with a Band-Aid solution, we should be trying to put more money into purpose-built rental housing and, you know, multifamily housing and kind of that baseline, you know, housing form in the market that allows people to come in and rent it immediately and stay there. And if we can push up the vacancy rate a little bit, that would solve quite a few of these problems. But as you're saying, it's all contingent on cheap debt. And in the longer term, what we should be trying to facilitate are market conditions that are favorable in terms of an actual business case to build purpose-built rental housing separate from just being able to get free money to do it. So what, from your perspective, stands in the way most uh, when it comes to purpose-built rental? I'm, a I'm actually speaking at the um, ResCon uh, AGM tomorrow, the Residential Construction Council uh, of Canada. And so I'm curious just really to get your take. Like I have my theories, but I'm curious, what's your take of the biggest obstruction for purpose-built rental right now? Uh, I mean, there are several things at different levels of government, right? There's, um, you know, the taxes and fees that come along with new development. There's excruciatingly long approvals processes. Um, exclusionary zoning is a big one. Uh, exclusionary zoning and, you know, nimbyism in general. 
Restrictive covenants are an interesting one that not a lot of people talk about, which is basically where there's, uh, what's the best way to put it? There's like reciprocal agreements between different property owners that only a certain type of thing can be built on that property. Uh, And it's a way that kind of property owners use to secure their neighborhood as a certain type of housing separate from like city zoning and city regulations. Yeah. So it would be like a title there. It's interesting. We've actually never discussed it on the show, but it, it, it's, it, it's pretty uncommon, but it is, it is common in places where it would matter. Like you're describing, it wouldn't matter to probably exactly. to a lot of our yeah. audience. Cause we're not dealing with pension funds who are trying to build stuff around, uh, you know, shopping malls or whatever. But yeah, there's a lot of restrictive covenants when it comes to transit. Like, so MTO has restrictive covenants around like every, uh, a certain setback on every major road, all highways have it all, railways have it. Um, so there's, so that would be a pro- probably a good example is it's not actually zoning, but it's registered on title. It, it looks like an easement kind of, we're going to get, I'm going to get blasted by a lawyer for trying to, to describe it in that way, but where it's, it's actually on the title of the property that you can't do something because of the neighbor. Yeah. Fascinating. And, That's a good know, one. It's good, good thought. Yeah. As you say, it is more of a minor issue or it's kind of like a peripheral issue, but all these things add up to a situation where we are effectively putting in a lot of roadblocks to doing something that we should be facilitating, right? We should be working to get more housing built, to get the vacancy rate pushed up to a level where basically occupants and owners are in a more balanced market. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, like people will, you know, I think a lot of my viewers would be upset to hear me say that rent control is not necessarily a great solution. Because, you know, it it distorts the market. And again, it's a Band-Aid to deal with a situation where, you know, tenants and landlords are not on equal footing, right? Yeah, it's it's, it's treating a symptom, right? Like, I think rent control is treating a symptom and and, and every time we're treating a symptom, we're refusing to look at the disease, right? And and, and at least that's what it seems to be with the the government, with a lot of these Band-Aids. Yeah, and really all it does, especially the way that it's done in Ontario, uh, where it's tied to the tenancy and not to the property, it just transfers the burden of rent from long-term tenants to new tenants or people who have to move, right? Um, But at the same time, it also discourages the creation of purpose-built housing, right? It's one of the major reasons why Ontario has had almost none of that. And instead, people are just putting up condo towers, selling all the units and walking away from the project. And then Um, that creates a hundred different landlords. It's a good, it's it's an interesting thought, but the the thing is with Ontario, 2018 and newer is not subject to rent control. And so you would think that like that arbitrage that those new units have, that they're able to sell to the, to the market at an unregulated rate would incentivize them. But I think the challenge with the big challenge with purpose-built rental versus high-rise condo is like in order to build a high-rise condo, you need a a lot of cash and a big deposit and you need to pre-sell a ton of units to do that so you can borrow against those deposits. And in order to do that, functionally, these these people who are buying these pre-construction condos are investors in the project, right? They're providing collateral for the capital stack that later gets used for construction financing. So the ultimate equity requirement is what's standing in the way in, in that example where a developer would have to put like 30% equity in if they wanted to build the same project as a purpose-built rental and they have to put like 5 to 10% in to build it as condos because the investor deposits end up making up the difference uh, or the, the the buyer deposits. Yeah, there was something else I wanted to jump on there, but I totally forgot. So I'll let Nick jump in with his next question here. Yeah, no, I mean, really good stuff so far. You know, I like the, I like the old discussion about the Band-Aid solutions. So let's keep that analogy going. 
it seems that that's been the case with with every problem, just Band-Aid solution, bad news solution. So from a triage perspective, to go back and address the problems that you've identified and the problems that we've been talking about on this show for the last year and a half, two years, where do we start to fix it? Like, where does it make sense to go first and put that effort, energy, money, you know, is it, is it pulling back on cheap debt? Is it incentivizing developers? Is it shutting the doors on immigration? Is it a little bit of each? What's your take on how to fix the problems that you've identified? I think, yeah, from a triage solution point of view, I mean, yeah, it is a little bit of each. Obviously, I think you you guys discussed this in your last episode, but we've seen a huge explosion in population recently, right? Yeah. And a lot of that is in non-permanent residents and, you know, temporary workers. And that's, again, another issue of us using a Band-Aid solution to address a problem, right? You can't borrow your way out of debt and you can't do it by borrowing money and you can't do it by borrowing people either. So in terms of what we need to do, what we need to target, I guess, is a higher vacancy rate to, again, make housing more accessible to everyone. And that needs to happen at different levels of government and on different sides of the equation, right? We could ease up on demand a little bit by, you know, granting, I guess, fewer non-permanent resident permits. Uh, I don't really see um, like rising PR numbers as a problem because we've always been building enough housing to accommodate that. But as far as, you know, just letting any business that wants get as many permits as they want, like that's something we could ease up on. And in fact, it's something that our current government promised to do before they were elected and then kind of went the opposite yeah, well, way with it. Let's, now on the let's supply not get side, into government problems yeah. or government promises, I should say. Same yeah, thing. Yeah, sure. Well, <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's an issue of all of the parties that form our government right now. So I'm not uh, trying to get political with it, really. But as far as the supply side goes, I think one thing we're seeing a really good trend in right now is a reduction in exclusionary zoning. So um, a lot of cities are starting to allow denser housing by default, even as the lowest density zone, you can build multi-unit housing. And another thing I think we need to do is, I guess, get um, municipal and provincial governments to stop scraping so much money from housing transactions. It was something that we had the capacity to do when the market was really hot and prices kept going up and up. But now that things are slowing down and we're seeing a pullback in prices, having things like land transfer taxes, development fees, all of these things that have been piling on where it's been an easy source of revenue. Now it's becoming a real inhibition to getting housing built. So yeah, basically easier regulations through zoning and through approvals uh, and then reducing the financial burden of what I would consider to be non-productive entities in the house building process like government fees. Yeah, I mean, I think the the CanCN and ResCon report showed that they had, it, it had jumped from like 26% of total cost structure, which is still a, a massive amount to like 31% of total cost structure. So like the government is the largest beneficiary of, of new construction. The interesting part, and I'm curious to get your take on this. So like, it sounds like we're kind of in agreement that the path that we're on is we're going towards probably a renter's economy if nothing changes anytime soon. Homeownership will likely stay in decline. We're going to continue to see a lot of at-scale purpose-built rentals, still probably not enough purpose-built rental. One of the consequences of that could be you know, the way that we see the idea of Canadians getting poorer, which we hear in quotes all the time, um, it, 
that materializes in a lot of people from our generation never stepping up into their next home or never upsizing and our quality of life the quality of life d- decline that we see materializes in units getting smaller which is common acro- around the world we have the third largest square footage per capita i believe so i i guess the the question that i have here is do you think that these more incremental changes like upzoning to four units du- you know duplexing triplexing four units six units cutting up existing houses, just given, like, I I think you're probably especially in touch with the market right now. Do you think that those are going to have a meaningful solution or are we really just relying on a high rise to solve this problem? Or not high rise, but but large scale development? Well, I think it's both, right? Everyone, you know, when they're criticizing these policies, uh, for example, you know, I, I very closely followed the affordable housing plan debate in Calgary, because I had done a series of videos on it and I wanted to see the public consultations. And what you end up seeing is a lot of people criticizing a policy by saying, you know, this alone is not going to give us what we need, or like, this is not the right type of housing or whatever. But if you look at the advocacy side, right, on people who are in support of affordable housing, you have to understand housing as a continuum, right? There's people who are unhoused or in insufficient housing right now. And a lot of people say, okay, to solve that problem, we need to just build uh, like social housing or subsidized housing, affordable housing units like that. But a lot of that is also the consequence of not enough housing existing across the whole market, right? Uh, for example, I had some friends who were previously living downtown in the city and then their unit got sold. They couldn't afford to rent a new place in the same area. And so they ended up moving like well, well outside the city core. And this is like a dual professional income couple. So if they were to have housing that met their needs where they wanted to live, then they wouldn't be taking up this other spot that they're in now. And then that spot would be available for someone else. And so when you have insufficient housing in, you know, the middle, a lot of times we refer to the missing middle housing, which is kind of, you know, medium density row housing, that kind of thing. When you expand that, people will move in there and they ease up on the, you know, the next rung down the ladder, if you want to call it that, right? Because people aren't going to move up to something that they can't afford. They're going to move down to the next thing they can afford. And that takes up spaces from people who can afford that, but can't afford the next one up, right? So when you have not enough in the middle segment of the market, people get pushed down and down and down. And eventually people get pushed off the bottom of the housing ladder and into the street or into a shelter system, something like that. Um, Which is why you're starting to see people who are, you know, they may be working full time, but they're unhoused or they're living in a shelter. Yeah. Right. So we can say, yeah, there's these incremental solutions. Yes, we need those. We also need like high rise towers. We need less restrictive zoning everywhere to get new housing built. I mean, I I don't see it as a, a question of, which solution is going to be the one that saves us? I see it more as like, uh, you know, everyone should take one improv class and learn yes and, right? Yeah. We need this yeah, and sure. we need this and we need this. It's it's many, many problems at all levels of government. There's been many policy failures that have persisted for a long time and we need many solutions to all kind of be implemented at once. Everyone needs to be pulling in the same direction and not kind of worrying about finger pointing and saying who's to blame for this. It's something that we all need to pitch in and solve. Yeah, for sure. Um, Really interesting insights. What do you, when you see 
people like I think that especially probably I, I maybe I'm wrong here, but I, I think TikTok is probably more like a Gen Z, very much a Gen Z platform. Like that would be the biggest audience on there. Is that right? Uh, I think a lot of people who follow me fall into my age bracket, actually, millennials. I haven't looked at my analytics for a bit, but I think um, millennials may have actually overtaken Gen Z on, on TikTok generally Good, now. About time. About time. Go, go us. <laughs> yeah, we got it back from them. So, so that means we're safe to wear skinny jeans and stuff like that again? So what are... I, my, I was curious because I thought it'd be interesting to get the, the take on... Um, what Gen Z is feeling like. I think millennials kind of, you know, any of the damage is going to happen to us and our fate as homeowners or whatever it is probably already taken place. For Gen Z, you know, the next generation that's supposed to be coming up and thinking about their financial future and buying houses and stuff like that. Does it seem like a lot of them have sort of just given up? Like, is that, is that kind of the, the thought that isn't out there or like, I think so. Yeah. I think, you know, among millennials, there's a lot of this like frustration of we've seen something kind of like slip away from us. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there was a chance for us, right? Yeah. Or, well, you know, if you're, uh, if you're older and you had a good job or you were living in like a specific kind of market, like, yeah, there might have been an opportunity to buy it, or it was like you were kind of like you would have been close if things stayed the same. And then they just, kept getting further and further out of reach, like faster than people could save up for it. Gen Z, in a lot of cases, I think it's just been kind of, they've been born into a situation where they assume they're never going to own a place. And they're also in an extremely difficult rental market right now. That's, I think, another really, really very difficult part of their experience. And, you know, I don't want to be the older generation saying, oh, we had it tough too. Like, no, it's way harder to be Gen Z and to be starting out your career and having to rent a place for like 50% of your income or 60% of your income. Yeah. There's really no way to get ahead there, right? Like when I was starting out, I said, okay, I don't want to bury myself in debt to buy a house. Mm-hmm. Like I could have done it if I laid down all the money I had in the world and then like put a bunch of my income towards it. I didn't want to do that. But I was still able to like go out and find a cheap place to rent. And it wasn't hard to find an apartment where I wanted to live. Yeah. And then I started, you know, setting money aside in savings and investments. And eventually that led to me buying a place in a different market, right? But that's neither here nor there, right? What they're experiencing is like, even if you're graduating with like a good degree and you get a good job right out of school, it's really hard to get ahead. They're just kind of treading water and working and paying bills as we, uh, as you said in the beginning of your last episode. Yeah. What, what different market did you buy in? If, if that's, <laughs> is that on the table? None of your business. It's Fair wherever enough. I live now. It's not, oh. uh, it's not the GTA, which is where I used to live. Right. And uh, it's oh, not it's, uh, it is Vancouver. Where you, you live now. I got, uh, I thought yeah, you meant you, uh, not, uh, you're like a long distance investor or that, no, or no. I thought I you maybe deal bought, with that. Yeah. I thought maybe you bought a, a castle in France. Not yet. No. No. Once I get, uh, once I get my YouTube revenue coming in, then I'll, <laughs> I'll be yeah. right to uh, right to a castle. Yeah. Well, let's chat a little bit about that. Like how, how's, how's that going? How's the segue into long form, longer form going? Uh, I know TikTok's doing long form now. Tell, tell me a little bit about the content journey and like what you're seeing right now. If you have any advice for people who are in, in this space, like housing, real estate, uh, investment, whatever, what, what kind of like tips can you give? Maybe top, top three things that you would recommend for people who want to who want to be like you and have 150,000 followers on TikTok that want to hear about the housing market? Uh, for short form content, it's it's definitely different from long form content. Although I'm, I consider TikTok to be entirely a 
short form content platform because it only goes up to 10 minutes, which I still consider short. Like there's some topics that I could drone on about for like 45 minutes, right? which is part of what I'm hoping to do with uh, YouTube in the future when I have time to actually record those videos. Yeah. It's really hard to find the time required to research and script and, and prep and film something like that. But for TikTok, first of all, I would say um, like people can spot when your content is inauthentic. Like if you're trying to, uh, you know, push a product or sell a course or something, um, they, they would rather just hear somebody who's passionate about something talking about it. Mm-hmm. Another really important thing is that those platforms like from the user side are very much about like scrolling and flipping through videos and then stopping on something that interests you. So something that's really key if you're going to be doing more um, detailed content is to summarize what the video is going to be about in like the first two seconds. Yeah. So like you'll notice that in my videos uh, that I will like the first sentence that I say is what the video is going to be about. And I put the text on screen as well. So Mm -hmm. there's like, this is what the video is about. If you want to watch it, stay and watch. And if you don't, you can scroll by. But if you have someone who's just talking for like 30 seconds, like kind of leading into their own train of thought about it, people are just going to, are just going to flip by. Right. What's your best piece of content, best performing piece of content? Best performing piece of content. It would be one of the castle videos. I'm not sure which, like those are mostly, most of the ones that have gotten over a million views are from that. Yeah. And then as far as like analytical goes, I had one that was my very first video about, the housing bubble, which just, it shows that like classic chart of like, here's home prices versus disposable income in the States. And then in Canada, you normally see them side by side. I presented them one after the other, because I like to do uh, reveals. That's something that uh, I guess I I wasn't doing it intentionally, but I think that's something that keeps people watching is having a series of reveals in the videos. For sure. So that one did really well because it's, you know, it's shocking if you're seeing that data for the first time, which a lot of people are. Yeah. You know, for me, it's not anymore because I've just been watching it get worse and worse and worse and more ridiculous for 15 years. Yeah. Whereas the other one that I had was called um, the beginning of the end question mark about the housing bubble and uh, how interest rates may affect it. Very ominous. Because I I do think that's really what's going to take a lot of juice out of it. And that was, you know, something like almost a 10 minute video just explaining the relationship between the price of debt or the price of money and the price of real assets like housing. Love it. On that note, what do you think? Like, were you surprised by how far prices dropped? Did they not drop? Like, did they meet your expectations, exceed your expectations? And what do you think is, you know, I try not to ask people to forecast or, or um, hold them to forecast, but like, you know, if you were to guess, what do you think is kind of the next 12 to 24 months? Uh, I don't think prices have settled at an equilibrium yet. As I mentioned on Twitter, you know, a lot of real estate agencies are releasing their bullish projections for more price gains in 2024. They have no bias though, so it's all good. Sure. Yeah. So and yeah, <laughs> I'm a little um skeptical of that because uh, you know, in my I did a fairly in-depth analysis on this in my um video about cheap debt. And, you know, I looked at what's the price of a home versus how much borrowing power do households have adjusted for inflation at a given payment, right? And we've seen that ratio of home prices skyrocket completely when interest rates went up. And I think they'll probably settle somewhere above where they were before. Like it's going to be less affordable. 
because I think there's still a lot of you know pent up demand and people are very bullish on housing in Canada in general. But a lot of people just don't have the money to buy, which is why we've been seeing you know we've seen a big decline in prices, but we're still seeing very slow sales. Right, people aren't jumping into the market to get those properties simply because they can't afford it. And at the same time, we've got a lot of existing um, fixed term interest debt like five-year fixed mortgages that have not renewed yet. It's becoming a diminishing part of the market because so many people at the very rock bottom of interest rates decided to go variable, which obviously turned out not to be a great decision for them. But yeah, that was... Yeah, right now there is something like uh, between the new debt rate being offered by banks, like the interest rate on a five-year mortgage today versus the existing debt on five-year mortgages the it's a spread of something like 270 basis points. So people who are renewing this year, even if rates drop by 100, 150 basis points over the course of this year, people who are renewing are still going to be paying more than they were before. And I think once you see those lines touch, when people are in general in the market paying the prevailing rate for new debt, mm-hmm. and when home price, when home sales start to come back up again, uh, that'll give us a better idea of what equilibrium pricing looks like. But I also think, you know, regardless of housing prices, this may surprise people, but I don't care that much about housing prices. The problem for me is that all of these housing prices were supported by debt, right? Which means households have an enormous debt load. And the cost of that- Biggest in the world, right? In Canada? I'm not sure if it's still the biggest in the world, but it's it's really up there. It's something like 185 or 186 cents of debt per- dollar of disposable income on average, which is really, really bad as kind of like at a macro level. It's something like $2.9 trillion of household debt was the latest I saw as of October, 2023. I think we can make it to 3 trillion if we really try, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> they're, when, they're when certainly at, trying. So yeah. And when you look at that, like, you know, if you're saying like $3 trillion of debt, then every move of one basis point, right? And the bank normally adjusts by 25, but like every one basis point is something like $30 billion to the economy. Yeah. It's like a multi, multi, multi billion dollar question of one basis point. And I think uh, in this long term buildup of debt, we never thought about that, right? There was a lot of uh, speculation of like, oh, what happens if rates go up by 1%? Like that's going to cause a huge amount of stress for households. And then they went up by 475 basis points. Like there's a lot of pain that has yet to be felt because there is still that pre-existing cheap debt. And we're also seeing people put more more of their debt onto short form types of lending, like lines of credit, HELOCs, credit cards. Mm Mm-hmm. So they're not actually necessarily managing their debt. They're just kind of rearranging it into a worse format. You see the same trend with um, mortgage lenders, right? Like traditionally, you would see people, if they were really strained to buy a property, they would go to, for example, a B lender, a private lender with the hope of moving up to an A lender where they're in a a more regulated market, right? And now you're very much seeing it go the other way. New debt is diminishing at the big six banks and is going more to private lenders, mortgage investment comp- corporations, things like that. Yeah, for sure. So so then are you of the perspective that we still need to see a, a de- deleveraging take place sort of before we can see the Canadian economy grow? 
like regardless of what the interest rate is, we still need to pay off that debt really before we can see meaningful growth here, I think. In, in terms of the economy, yeah, absolutely. I think we are very, very badly in need of a deleveraging cycle and have been for quite a while now. And like I said, everybody, well, not everybody, but uh, I think everyone who was paying attention knew that it would happen eventually. We just didn't know when. And now it is happening and we don't quite know what it's going to look like or if you know, something else is going to happen that disrupts it or if the government is going to try and step in. I think they will. I don't know if they will have the power to stop it necessarily. What might that said, look like from your perspective? This is, this is fun. I'm enjoying this. Okay. Um, one thing that I, again, it's, I think it's going to depend on the regulatory side of government to whether or not they allow this, but uh, like we could see the extension of insured mortgages at longer amortizations and lower down payments. Like in 2006, right? Uh, in the first conservative budget, uh, they did introduce 40-year zero down mortgages insured through the CMHC. Right? Not a lot of people remember that. They did eventually claw it back to their credit. But that, I, in my opinion, is part of why we saw home prices in 2008 in Canada. They took that like tiny little blip of a dip and then continued yeah. rising. And I consider that just you know an extension of more credit. And over the past 15 years, between any party that's been in government, when you see them talking about making housing more affordable, what they actually end up doing is just extending more credit to people and kind of... Uh, putting the risk back onto the taxpayer through a program like the CMHC. Fascinating. My thought would be like I think I actually think that the upzoning is is an attempt for them to create a bit of a price floor, right? Like because by increasing the output of property, they're um they're kind of flooring the value, the investment value of it. But it wouldn't surprise me if we ended up also going the route of like a universal basic income. It, you know, especially with an election coming up, it might be uh and the incumbent party polling quite low. Like I'm just thinking of, you know, what kind of Hail Mary they might throw at this election to to try and get a put a win on the board. And that, that one just seems like a low-hanging fruit from my perspective. It's possible. I mean, they've been doing okay so far with endless studies and no actual action on it. I do think that's kind of a, you know, this we're getting off the topic of real estate. To me, it's an interesting one to study, I think, as um, possibly a replacement for a lot of our means-tested programs. Mm-hmm. Because we're spending a lot of money on overhead and we're putting, you know, on recipients, there's like a significant burden of paperwork and managing all of the things they need to do to get those benefits when really you could just give them money and let them spend it. Like a, a really interesting video that I like to um, give to the more like economically liberal minded people, like people who are free market economists, is there's a video of uh, Milton Friedman on firing line like years and years ago. And he's basically making a case for a universal basic income. He frames it as a negative income tax. It's essentially the same thing because you would have you know, some money going to the lower end and some being clawed back as they start working their way up the income ladder, which is how it would have to be arranged one way or the other. You, know, you can't just send a check to everyone and have no tax consequences hmm. on the other end of that. But th- there is like an interesting case from either side for universal basic income, in my opinion. But I don't think that's coming before the next election. I think it's- uh, No, it's yeah, I would agree too completely. Yeah. yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. Interesting. I think that's everything I got for you today. Nick uh, dropped off the recording here because uh, 
that's just how we do it on the show. We have technical difficulties. It's the only thing that's guaranteed on the show is that we're going to have a technical difficulty at least once in an episode. He's sitting here. So do you have any other questions? No? No idea what you guys thought. Yeah, it was a great conversation. I wish you were part of it. But uh, anything you want to add before we wrap up? Uh, anything you want to share with the audience? And if not, then uh, where can they find you if they would like to argue with you in the TikTok comments or whatever it might be? Uh, yeah, well, if on any platform that you've seen me on, uh, be it you know, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, or Twitter, those are all the main ones that I'm active on. Uh, there is also... A link in my bio where you'll find links to all the other platforms, you know, links to spreadsheets that I've made. If you want to audit them and tell me I'm full of crap, you can find other ways to contact me. And in general, my DMs are open on most platforms. So I'm not that hard to get in touch with, but uh, I am pretty busy these days. So I might not respond right away. Fair enough. Busy with what? Just personal life stuff or being a housing policy analyst slash all the other different things that you do on, on social media there? Yeah, between this job and my real job uh, takes up a lot of time and then also my personal life. So it's uh, a yeah, precious enough. little free, free time to waste on stuff like that. But Yeah, totally. Totally get it, man. Um, okay, well, thanks a lot for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, I think this is going to be a great episode. For everyone in our audience, make sure you check out Millennial Moron on TikTok. We'll, we'll put uh, all of his stuff in the show notes so you guys can just click right through and give him a heads up. Let him know that you found him on the show. Thanks, man. All right. Thank you very much. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group, license number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.